1: Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, USBets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our Senior Analyst, Pulitzer Prize Finalist, John Brennan. And I am living the life, John. My kids are at overnight camp and my wife is in uh. Israel, so it's just me and Otis the dog and I'm taking naps whenever I please, watching TV in bed for an hour or two every morning when I get mm. up, putting a huge dent in my TV series binge list, and even had time to watch USFL football on Sunday night. (laughs) Uh, I still won't bother watching It's a Wonderful Life, I don't think, no offense. Uh, But uh, I expect to see every other piece of content out there over the next few days. John, are you proud of me for going full couch potato? Ashamed of me that this is what I've chosen to do with my time or somewhere in between?
0: Uh, Yeah. I I mean, I got to say you're raising two kids and these days. There's a lot more involved. Uh, I mentioned before that I was a free range kid. You know, I'd say my parents just rolled out the baseballs, but They didn't even do that. So so my childhood, my childhood was mostly my responsibility. That included transportation, oversight, you name it. I got a roof and three square meals a day. And it was easy for all of us, frankly, but uh, times have changed. So I saw one of your Slack notes that you have been on Team NAP as well. And I'm a chairman emeritus in that category. Uh, You're getting a little hint from, well, I'd say the Ghost of Christmas Future. But I imagine you've never seen that movie either, Eric
1: uh that one i feel like we watched that in in school at some point or at least i've certainly it's been done and redone in so many different ways that i've certainly su- seen some version of scrooge and uh, the christmas yeah. story all okay. right wait a christmas a christmas carol is that what it's the original uh, yeah. uh, book is called yeah or whatever yeah so, yep. okay yep. <laughs> i called it a christmas story that's the one with the kid with the red rider beard um so, out, yeah. <laughs> so yeah i'm finding naps of course come in all different forms and i've 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 hit them all uh you know during uh uh, I, I probably shouldn't say it's on a, the podcast, but even during the work day, I'm occasionally squeezing in like a 15 minute power nap uh, in, in the afternoon. But on weekends uh, I took a, up to a two hour nap uh, the other day, which was uh, just, Just a delight, really powered me through. Um, So uh, in terms of my uh, TV viewing, I do have a couple of quick recommendations for the listeners. Um, The After Party on Apple TV Plus was a delight from start to finish, and it's a quick binge. Um, It's a comedy murder mystery, sort of like the movie Knives Out, but sillier and funnier. (laughs) And I just started the new FX Hulu show, The Old Man, with Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow. I've only watched the pilot, but it is great. One of the best pilot episodes of anything I've seen in a long time. So right. there are okay. some recommendations, and, and I should throw in an obligatory. I miss my wife and kids, just in case one of them ever listens. To yeah, exactly. Like I gotta cover let's, my tracks.
0: Let's go with that. And uh, <laughs> as an expert on napping, I'll, I'll give you the uh, the ultimate level that uh, you can shoot for okay. you have a late afternoon nap for like an hour maybe a little more uh-huh. and then you wake up and you're certain it's the next morning <laughs> yeah <laughs> but wait it's like you know 5 55 p.m and like you get a it's it's like uh, you're you're buying time wait, I, I'm not you know, getting ready to go to work. I'm I'm awake now and I get an entire evening free because I thought I went through the whole evening. Yeah, that's and that takes it's a master class. I mean, it's, it's going to take you a while to get there, but it's a, it's a <laughs> sweet spot when you do. I'm, I really enjoy that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny that you bring that up. One of my uh, housemates, my senior year of college was uh-huh. uh, was was a big napper. And he specifically would often wake up disoriented enough that he didn't know what day it was anymore. And so we named that after him. His last name was Newburn. That was not a nap. That was a Newburn. If you didn't know what day it was anymore by the time you got up.
0: Nice. That's a a prodigy right there.
1: (laughs) Yes. Can only imagine the kind of naps he's taking now. (laughs) All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 199 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 198 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please subscribe Subscribe, write us a nice review, and give us a five-star rating. These are all things you can do without ever getting out of bed, so you really have no excuse. Oh, absolutely. And uh,
0: coming up a little later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Poker Go Senior PR and Communications Manager, Donnie Peters, who's been covering the World Series of Poker and also is playing in this year's main event and is taking time to chat with us in between his day one and day two. Well, that's Donnie for his prediction on whether the main event field size record will fall, whether there have been major complaints about the new host casinos, what it feels like when Phil Ivey or Phil Helmuth goes on a deep run. The first has been a, let's face it, short news week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling.
1: Let's start this week with a bit of sad news, with the death of a well-known figure from the sports betting world, Hank Goldberg, who died Monday, July 4th, on his 82nd birthday. Goldberg was best known to most as a sports handicapper for ESPN since 1994, but his career in sports dates back well before that. In 1966, he joined the PR department of the Miami Dolphins and started working in Miami radio, and he soon became friendly with Jimmy the Greek Snyder and started ghostwriting Snyder's syndicated column. Goldberg eventually became a top handicapper among the most respected with Vegas bookmakers and finished 500 or better against the spread 15 of his 17 seasons handicapping NFL games for ESPN. Hammer and Hank was also an expert horse racing handicapper. John, you've crossed paths with many in the sports media over the years. Did you ever meet Hank Goldberg, who, by the way, was originally from Newark, New Jersey? And uh, either way, any thoughts on his passing and on his role in bringing sports betting talk to the mainstream?
0: Yeah, I didn't know the Newark roots, but it totally adds up in terms of his larger-than-life personality and his work ethic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Hank's father was a sports writer, so Mm -hmm. Hank knew probably better than anybody in sports radio that there was a value there. So he'd have me on, as a guest before, say a Nets Heat regular season Mm -hmm. game or a Knicks Heat playoff game to talk nitty-gritty. You know that may sound sound awfully obvious, but few if any sports radio uh, talk show hosts around the country ever had us ink stained wretches beat guys on, and uh, it's a bit of a life lesson. You know, you're hosting a sports radio talk show, you're living a dream. You don't want to be bothered making a phone call to get on a guest who can offer the inside scoop on a local team's next opponent. You know, I mean, dare to be better, you know, because if think about it, you know, sports talk radio, let's face it, you might be a retired sports fanatic. That's a good audience for them. They've earned the right to listen to such shows all day. And it's good listening fodder to get you a little more hyped up for that night's game to get the, uh, you know, the the skinny on the, uh, the opposing team. And I guess in retrospect, Maybe some people were making wagers based on that information, but I never thought about that. (laughs) Um, Now, there have been some wonderful and profound tributes out there for Hank. uh, Jeremy Schapp in particular, had one. Mm So this one's a little behind the scenes in comparison. But the level of respect is there across the board from me and from everybody.
1: All right. Well, uh, I never did meet him. um, But uh, here's here's something uh, I learned this week. Uh, According to at least one long and seemingly well-researched obit, Hank Goldberg dated Katie Couric at some point. He was uh, 17 uh, years older than her, if you're curious. Wow. Uh, So good work there. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I don't have a whole lot to add on Goldberg, having never met him. Um, Our colleague, Matt Rivaltowski, met him. I don't know if he ever appeared on his radio show, but he did meet him in person and uh, had some kind words. Uh, So so check out Matt's obit on Sports Handle. But uh, as far as Goldberg's role in bringing sports betting to the mainstream, you know, there's this generation or or multiple generations really of sports media types that he comes from who managed to talk about point spreads on air before it was necessarily acceptable to talk about point spreads on air. Uh, And you needed some charm to, to pull that off. You needed Mm -hmm. to make it fun. You couldn't get away with it. If you came across as a degenerate or as someone who was all about making money and hammer and Hank uh, threaded that needle on ESPN, um, we have it easy now on that front, you know, but uh, Goldberg was one of a handful who helped pave the way when it was a lot less acceptable to talk about sports from a betting perspective.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really well put just because, uh, you know, being a a Jersey New York guy myself, I mean, you know, we, we had a bookie in every neighborhood, right. And, in every corner bar and it was just a given and that's what he grew up with. And uh, so it was natural to him. And so when he sort of, put that perspective out there, it wasn't like, well, what are you talking about? How weird is that? Like, you know, you're from Jersey. That's, that's kind of how you roll. And uh, like I said, he had the charm to uh, pull that off. And uh, yeah, I think the industry is kind of indebted to him for helping, as you say, before it was officially, you know, kosher outside of Nevada uh, to make it like, yeah, it's, it's can be fun and it's, it's a challenge, And it's not a big deal. It's not going to ruin the sport and all that. So, you know, RIP to Hank.
1: Yeah, definitely. All right. Moving on to our second story, we haven't talked in a while about the slow build towards sports betting's launch in Ohio, which is scheduled to happen on New Year's Day. The last three weeks, the Ohio Casino Control Commission has been updating the list of wagering applicants on its website, and we've seen some of the usual suspects apply, uh, such as DraftKings, PointsBet, BetMGM, and Penn National Gaming, while we're still waiting for the likes of FanDuel and Caesars to apply. But probably the most unusual entity to apply for a betting license is the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Details are limited at this time, except our colleague Jill Dorson reported on OHBets.com that the Hall of Fame, quote, has plans to partner with Rush Street Interactive to offer in-person and digital wagering. So... Perhaps in 2023, there will be a physical sports book at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, Notably, the pro sports teams in Ohio are also eligible to apply for licenses, but none of them have yet. John, we're still within that six year window you cited last week for you to call out the hypocrisy <laughs> of the NFL. So, thoughts on the Football Hall of Fame potentially becoming a sports betting operator?
0: Well, you know, first off, I have to say that the only regulators and lawmakers in the country who might be thinking, wow, Ohio's just sailing through the sports betting process at breakneck speed are, <laughs> yes, the ones in Maryland. <laughs>
1: right.
0: Yeah. I retweeted our colleague, Bennett Collins, latest post about that state and couldn't resist adding the classic Titanic movie, uh, old GIF. <laughs> It's been 84 years that the lady mentions. Um, It seems like it. It's only been couple of years, I guess, but uh, back to, Ohio- to
1: I, I hate to break up your momentum, but mm-hmm. I enjoy the way that you uh, decided not to pick a side in the GIF versus GIF debate and instead spell it out GIF. I've never heard that move pulled off. Before. Yeah,
0: I, I was uh, rolling the dice there. But um, <laughs> anyway, back to Ohio and the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which is an interesting breed of cat. Note that it is not the NFL Hall of Fame. And as with the other major US sports, there are strong tie-ins, not utter domination by the leagues. I kind of like that. So the three USFL playoff games all well, were played in Canton in the last two weeks. After the entire regular season took place in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, now you have this, well, not quite rogue operation, but seemingly an independent one, you know, but I'll be interested to see how the sports book is integrated into the hall. This is a place of reverence, maybe too much reverence for a lot of diehard football fans, why they don't gamble or are actively opposed to it. Those fans don't want to be looking at a bust of Jim Brown or Johnny Unitas or somebody while an led ribbon listing Sunday's point spreads and money lines, create a background distraction right behind them. There's a way to do this effectively. I'm just not convinced we're going to see it there.
1: Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm really not terribly comfortable with a sports book uh, yeah. or, or even sports betting kiosks uh, at the football mm-hmm. hall of fame. I'm not sure if, that's exactly in the plans or if they just want a license to put their brand on an app or, or what exactly but it's weird. Like I'm good with sports books in stadiums, but for whatever reason, that's hard to express yeah. a sports book at the hall of fame feels like it's over the line to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm confusing how sacred a hall of fame is supposed to be with how yeah. sacred it actually is. Yeah. But you know, if, if a sports book gets into a hall of fame in Ohio while Pete Rose can't because he bet on sports, <laughs> that's really something there.
0: Yeah. It's just uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a place of respect for, uh, diehard sports fans who don't gamble, which is a huge mm-hmm. contingent of diehard sports fans. Yeah. And, you know, the Hall of Fame is Hall of Fame. I kind of agree with you. And it's funny because about why a stadium, and I see it, you know, at the uh, City Field now and New York and New Jersey, I, I see it all over. Yeah. And I guess, well, it's not even just the size because uh, the Hall of Fame is huge. It's just like a stadium. But I just, I don't know, people go there to soak in the history of the sport and that's what they there that's what they're there for and um so yeah we both have a vague uneasiness about this for some reason and uh kind of funny in, in the in our industry and occupation and yet this just something you know like I said it, it could be done well you know where you don't even notice it or you got to go around the corner and then if, if you want to do that extra mile you right. could do that but it doesn't really disturb the the peace of the history but i'm not sure that's gonna happen like i said
1: yeah if the two of us have some discomfort about it imagine yeah. the people who, <laughs> yeah. who, who have not at all embraced sports betting and how yeah. they're gonna be feeling um on a separate note um I'm not a fan of this January 1st universal start date in Ohio, not just because it's taking forever to get there, but also because it forces some of our staff to work on New Year's Eve and New Year's day for our main OH bets writer, Don Emmons, possibly for one additional writer and for one of our editors, possibly me. We're talking about a full work day, maybe more than that, maybe starting at midnight covering this launch. Now these are first world problems for sure, but January 1st, The OCCC didn't really think this through, you know, not just us also, you know, people working the sports books, they themselves at the OCCC there, there need to be regulators around that day, I would think they could have made it Tuesday, January third, and let all those people enjoy their holiday weekends.
0: And plus one hiccup of like a week or two weeks and they miss the Ohio state uh, bowl game, maybe championship game. I mean, you know, gee, what's the biggest event we could have all year in Ohio. Mm, I'm going to say Ohio state championship (laughs) game or playoff game. And let's try and get it going right. Exactly at the time (laughs) they're going to do that. Right. Because this way, if we make one little mistake, we miss the whole damn thing for the year. Not, not the way I would go. Nope.
1: All right. Our final story this week is a continuation of a story we covered in April when the American Gaming Association sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and the DOJ asking them to crack down on offshore operators. Last week, a bipartisan group in Congress did the same, asking the DOJ to increase the scrutiny on and prosecution of offshore sportsbooks. Led by Democrat Dina Titus of Nevada and Republican Guy Reschenthaler of Pennsylvania, a group called the Congressional Gaming Caucus sent a letter to Garland, echoing the AGA's points and singling out offshore operators such as Bovada, BetOnline, and MyBookie. On the one hand, legal sports betting has spread to 35 states, and it is becoming an increasingly national concern. On the other hand, a lot of people rolled their eyes and, and made the case that the DOJ has more pressing matters to contend with. John, does a congressional caucus sending a letter like this figure to make any difference? And can you envision the DOJ putting significant resources into cracking down on offshore sports books?
0: Well, you know, I think whatever one's politics, there may be bipartisan agreement on one thing, which is that Congress ignores most of the 20 or is it 50 most pressing matters for years now. So <laughs> yeah. uh, does that mean that at least they should pass something to address topic number 72? <laughs> it's a fair question, but I, I think the answer may be yes. You know, I've always been a bit amazed at how brazen the illegal offshore sportsbooks are in spite of the you know federal uh, ban. And maybe I'm just getting my Irish up here. But if I'm in Congress, I kind of piss me off to see that they operate without any fear whatsoever. I mean, we're Congress, damn it. Um, so just one massive effort against it. Let's just say we'll call it Black Friday. Hey, that might be enough to change the landscape for years, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, they, they have dabbled in these waters before, certainly. Uh, the, and, and, you know, the DOJ is a big enough outfit that it can do multiple things at yeah. once. But it's not a great look to the general public if they're cracking down on my bookie and bet online. while I'll just say more mainstream criminal concerns haven't yet been cracked down on so Mm -hmm. my hunch is that nothing too pronounced and public is going to happen on this front too soon it's on their radar and these congress people have the appearance of getting the ball rolling but i don't think the aga should hold his collective breath about something big really happening on this front anytime too soon um but you know regardless of anything the doj does there has been a change taking place. I used to hear ads for the offshores on tons of podcasts, whether mm. sports gambling podcasts or even mainstream stuff that has nothing to do with sports. And I can't remember the last time I heard one of those. As uh. long as the Fan Duels and DraftKings's and others are willing to spend money to advertise, it seems to be having the effect of diminishing the presence of the offshores. All they really have now is the emails they send with their odds that sometimes get parroted by mainstream sports media types who still don't realize that there's a difference between a dot AG operator and a regulated sports book. I still see a lot of that stuff parroted, but otherwise it, it seems to be dying down a bit, at least in terms of what gets out there to the public. Well, I,
0: I had not realized that. And that's really interesting to me, but it makes sense that, you know, you know, obviously, if you're trying to make it financially and an offshore sports book offers you money to advertise on your podcast, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, not ideal, but look, you know, people got to eat. I mean, I'm not going to go nuts over it. But then, yeah, when FanDuel or DraftKings or somebody comes in and says, hey, we'll pay, you," you know, double that. Mm, let's see uh, I'd rather go with a legal book anyway and they're going to pay more yep. so screw the old guy we had for five years and uh, yep. so maybe maybe the system is sort of cleansing itself and uh, we don't need congress anymore which is just as well because yeah <laughs> any any bill that goes uh, or discussed in congress you know, you bet the under and you can win almost every time it's free money yeah it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling let's get to the gamble on interview
1: July is not the ideal time to go to Las Vegas. Unless you're a serious poker player, in which case you can't imagine not going to Vegas in July. The World Series of Poker main event started on Sunday and is still about a week away from its conclusion. And Donnie Peters has been covering the whole series for Poker Go. He's their senior PR and communications manager and the co-host of the Poker Go podcast. And he's also alive with a stack after one day of play in his first ever main event. And he joins us now to give us the scoop straight from Vegas. Donnie, welcome again to Gamble On.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go off script before I get into the opening question I was going to ask you. I just got to know, you survived your first ever main event day one. Was it everything you imagined it would be?
2: No, it was it was quite the opposite because, you know, I've been around this thing for quite some time. My, my first time out at the WSB was 2008, so I've, I've seen the event a lot. I haven't played it, but I've seen it, and I've played a lot of other events, obviously talked to a lot of players over the years. And my table draw was the toughest table draw I've ever had at a at a WSOP event um, by quite a lot. And I, I feel like a bit unfortunate and unlucky in that regard because, you know, you talk to a lot of people and they're like, yeah, it's super easy on the day ones, so Just get a good table draw and you can kind of coast through and that sort of thing. Mine was an absolute battle. So, <laughs> I mean, but, but what are you going to do? I'm, I'm happy to have survived at the end of the day.
1: Was it particularly, was there like a, a notable player that, that I would know or multiple notable players? It was just happened to be all solid players. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I sat down, I was like, okay, I don't recognize anyone. This feels good. Next thing I know it's, it's raise, re raise on every other hand. I'm like, okay, what, what is happening? Like what, it just must, it must've been a bunch of online guys is basically what I decided. Okay. <laughs>
1: All right. So so getting now to the question I was going to start with, and the timing of this is a little tricky because we're talking to you on Wednesday. This podcast will drop on Thursday morning, and registration for the main event won't close until midday Friday. But based on what you're seeing so far, how confident are you that this is the year the record of 8,773 players falls? And what would it mean for the game if indeed that record fell now in 2022?
2: Yeah, I'm very confident that the record's going to fall. Um, I've been saying I think slightly over 9,000 is, is where I'm at. Um, talking to a lot of people at the WSOP, whether that be tournament staff members, um, just various players that are there, industry members, etc. Um, people have been throwing around 10,000 as the number, which seems insane um i mean yeah it's it's good if it happens you know we're right now through the first three flights we're right around 36 or 3,700 so in order to top that 8773 we would need a little bit more than 5,000 um we did check in with some tournament officials last night they said there was already 2,100 or so registered for day 1d i'm assuming there's going to be many more that show up throughout the day and, and they kind of push towards capacity i, I know WSP was kind of trying to usher people to play the earlier flights, specifically day one C because they were worried about the capacity on day one D and, and specifically having to play 10 handed no one wants to do that but you know if you try and trying to accommodate to get all these people into the tournament sometimes you got to do what you got to do um, and then you know if it does in fact break the record 9,000 or 10,000 whatever it may be you know going forward for poker I I think it's it's just a great sign of things to come I mean it's it's one thing to, to move to a new venue, to kick it off in such a big way that they've already had massive fields throughout the entire WSOP. So this would be another one of those things. Um, you know, I think it's it just kind of becomes the new norm in a lot of ways. And as long as the economy holds somewhat halfway decent, I, I know it's not the best right now. Whether you're talking about the regular stock market, you know, the crypto market, all that sort of stuff, it's just kind of generally down. Inflation is through the roof, etc. But people have seemed like they've turned to poker in a way to to try and make more money, which is a good thing for our industry. So, Mm. um, if this does get a good record number, everyone in the industry is able to really tout that, put it out there. I think next year you see probably an even bigger number because you get like that FOMO effect. People missed out on the fact that, okay, I've missed the record setting one. I got to be there next year type of thing. I personally with me, I was always in the camp, you know, that I was going to play it someday. And then, last year, it just seemed like, it seemed like this year was going to be the biggest. I I don't know why I really felt that. I just felt like there was a lot of pent up demand. And that's ultimately why I chose this year. And it it seems like so far that that I've picked the right year to do it in terms of field size. But uh, yeah, overall, I think it's going to be just a massive thing for poker. We've all been like, you know, we all throw around the poker boom thing and like we're searching for the next poker boom and and whatnot. I I don't think we're ever going to see any sort of astronomical increase that we saw when moneymaker won back in 2003 that said if we can break this record really promote it continue to grow i think it's just kind of like sky's the limit for for you know the world series of poker and if we do break it this year i think 12,000 or something like that is a number that we see not necessarily next year but within the next you know four to five years for sure
1: Hmm. And what, one last thing before I let John finally ask a question. Uh, as long as you're talking about the, the the growth of the game. John and I were discussing last week how impactful it would be if either an established superstar or a woman made the final table. Which of those would you say would be better for the game this year? If if a woman makes it or if like an Ivy Helmuth Negranu type makes it?
2: I think I'm gonna go. I mean I don't know. It's tricky. It's a good question. Cause it's, it's hard. And obviously I'm, I'm waffling a little bit here, but um, I'm going to say a you'll, woman. You'll
1: never make it on first take. You got to immediately take it. Take yeah, a stand. I, I
2: know. I know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not just going to go out there and go at Stephen a with, a with a hard take. Um, Yeah. I think a woman, Um, I, I mean, I think there's been a, a big push in the last let's say year or so to, to really emphasize women in poker growing that uh, specific area of the game. There's been a big push this year, a lot. Um, so I think that finally making that happen can, can do a lot of good things. Um, you know, obviously getting someone like a, a Negrani or an Ivy at the final table is going to create buzz. But I think if you get a woman there, you're going to just get general buzz out the first fe- well, not the first female, cause Barbara Henry did it before, but, um, you know, in, in the modern era, so, right. some, a woman making it to the final table and getting like that, that breakthrough achievement in a way. Um, you know hopefully they ultimately go on to win it would, would be the ideal factor but just being able to promote that enough is you know you're going to promote it to obviously the, the women of the game right but then you're also just going to get the general promotion that that grows with hopefully mainstream media attaching themselves to it and then just putting the event out there anything that can put the event out there more put the entire series out there more is going to ultimately be good
0: yeah I'm I'm not a poker purist and I'm going to get killed for this but i would love to see one seat at the final table set aside for kind of an all-star lineup whether it's as small as 16 as high as 64 could include some women just guaranteed there's one person at least at the final table that people are familiar with. And and as outrageous as it is, look at the PGA golf tour. It's like, well, it's all meritocracy and I don't care if you're ranked number one in the world, you missed the cut, you get no dollars for that weekend. Sorry, buddy, every week you gotta earn your keep. And uh, yeah, eventually somebody said, you know what? You guys are worth a lot of money. We'll, we'll be gonna pay a little more. So I'm not saying anything's gonna happen on that, but that would be my thing. But uh, mainly I wanna talk about you know, the switch from uh, Rio to Bally's in Paris this year for WSOP was guaranteed to create a lot of griping among poker pros. We're not exactly shy and retiring types. So clearly there'll be growing pains. And I don't know if the men's room lines are going to be too long or domestic beer prices are over inflated or whatever, something, something is going to be there for them to complain about. And maybe there are complaints and I missed it, but, uh, are there any that I have missed? And if not, how, how can this run so smoothly?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I'll be as critical, as always, as anyone, I I always have been probably gotten in trouble for it at times, but I will say that this new move to the new venue has been an absolute home run. Um, talking with a lot of the people there, it's, it's really surprising because just generally people hate change, not even just in poker, in everything, people just don't like change. You're used to one thing. You're comfortable. You don't like to go outside of that box. This has really worked. I know probably the biggest complaint and, and, it it was kind of an initial complaint and it really hasn't come up since is the fact that people have to pay for parking. But I really haven't heard it much after that. The only, I guess, complaint that I would have is that at one point, if you, if you walk from like the Bally's to Paris or Paris to Ballas, you got to walk through this casino area and they're smoking aloud. And I just don't like smoking and walking through smoke and it yeah. bothers, bothers me. So that's like the my one like small gripe, but you're literally in it for like a minute or like 45 seconds. So it's not, it's not nothing too bad, but I mean, overall things have been great. The venue space is huge. Um, I just quickly on the numbers, the Rio total, like the, the rooms that were available there were 125,000 square feet, give or take a little bit at this new uh, venues uh, between valleys and Paris, you have 164,000. So, you know, just about 40,000 more square feet, which is absolutely massive. Um, They have a ton of tables. I think it's like 580 or something tables. It's, it's really cool. And, and I I also only think it's going to get better going forward because currently right now, Bally's is undergoing a rebrand to the horseshoe and they're going to kind of get a makeover and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's pretty awesome. I mean, I was, Again, I was like worried going in, obviously had my questions, knowing how the poker people are, you know, knowing that people are going to hate it. I talked to some people leading into it. You know, they're all like, yeah, everyone's probably going to hate it, whatever. Um, But ultimately, it it turned out to be, you know, a pretty good thing overall. And I think it's only going to get better.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear even a minor issue that you mentioned because I just refuse to believe that in a first year of anything, everything is perfect and, and there's nothing at all. Like then I then I don't believe I'm getting you know an honest answer. So you you give what you give me is minor stuff, but it makes it makes it uh, more realistic. Like okay, that's a little thing and maybe they can even uh, somehow address that a little bit. I know Atlantic City is pretty close to a casino smoking ban. I don't think Las Vegas is getting there anytime soon, but uh, but even so, it, it's a you know credit to the organizers and to uh, the casino hotels as well, because, uh, you know, they seem to have had their act together, you know, well in advance. And uh, again, you're getting a, a real feedback from Poker Pro. So I'm not going to, you know, just say, oh, yeah, you guys, you know, pat you on the head. Great job. If they don't like it. They're going to they're gonna say so. So when they are so uh, supportive of what's happened, I, I definitely give that a lot of credence.
2: So I think another thing that they need to probably, fix is is the ac has been a little bit hit or miss on the bally side um i mean it was at the beginning it was like broken the, basically what we heard is that they have two big ac units that that work in that conference center and one of them was down so you have half the the capacity to to be able to cool the place you know so it hasn't been amazon room levels if, if you remember the amazon room the amazon room was always complained that people were like it's way too cold in here you know but personally, I like it really cold. You can always put layers on. It's really hard to take layers off, you know? So especially when it's, you know, we're, we're back in the summertime in Las Vegas, it's 115 degrees outside. I want to come inside and it to be pretty cool, you know, and I'll throw a sweatshirt on if I, if I need to, you know, but it's, it's been a little bit hot at times on the belly side. Um, So, you know, I'm assuming they're going to address that going forward, especially with this, this rebrand that they're doing. And the only other thing that I think is, is like a complaint from the players, and it's not specifically about the venues but the venues do play into it a little bit just with all the added space that they have now they're able to accommodate so many more players and they have been all series long they need more staff now i don't know how they Mm -hmm. get more staff because it seems like they've they've tried their best to get dealers to get people at the cage to get clerks etc and it's i mean it's hard It, it this is one of those it's a good problem to have because when you have a ton of people it's really good problem to have, you know, but so hopefully they can find, find some, some more staff, get more dealers out there because it's just, it's hard. And, and I, I mean, I can't fault them for that. They tried that, you know, they raised the prices for the dealer downs by a lot, all, you know, all this sort of stuff. They really did put an effort on that. It's just that I guess people don't want to work anymore. I don't really know. <laughs>
1: right. You've uh, certainly been willing to work. Uh, you've been covering the whole series uh, podcasting several times a week throughout. Um, We've talked mostly about the, the main event so far. I'm curious, just the whole series to this point, do you have a, a favorite moment or, or a favorite story up through this point in the World Series of Poker?
2: Yeah, so I, I have two, and, and they both involve uh, guys named Phil. One is the return of Phil Ivey in, in general, just kind of as a all-encompassing thing. Just having Phil Ivey back at the World Series of Poker and back playing as much as he is, is just good for the game. It, it's good to have him there. He's, you know by a, you know, a wide group of people considered to be the best poker player in the world, both now and that has ever lived. So getting him back there, seeing him as focused as he is, grinding as hard as he is and being successful, making a lot of final tables, et cetera, that's just really great for the game. And I think has you know kind of rejuvenated like some fans and stuff like that, because at times in, in years past when, when Phil Ivey has sat out, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of check in and they're like, Oh, well Ivy's not even playing. Why should I care type of thing? So um, he's back now and he's playing he seems like he's just as good as he's ever been maybe better than ever so that's a great thing and then the second thing is phil Helmuth just recently going for number 17 ultimately losing heads up to david jackson in the the three thousand dollar nolan Holdem freeze out this happened right before the main event and i mean it was the, the place was electric you had everything from you know phil homie making a final table and chasing that that record setting or record extending 17th bracelet you had a bit of controversy at the beginning of the table with phil bantering with the rail on the rail bantering with him and phil calling security and this whole thing you had just like a crazy moment at the table where phil's eating food you had phil you know playing like kind of wild and crazy at the time which he calls his zoom zoom style of play i mean and then you had him getting as close as humanly possible to winning another bracelet but then getting shut down which is like a really good story in and of itself. Yes, if he would have won, it would have been a great story too, but it's also great that he makes it the heads-up play but then gets denied, and kudos to David Jackson for how well he played in order to deny uh, Phil Hamid that 17th bracelet. So that like was another really really cool story and it you know it's kind of like the those type of moments those type of nights are when you're like this is the world series of poker like you're in it you're seeing it you're seeing the excitement like david jackson's got his rail of i don't know 30 to 40 people that are rooting for him and and you know as a byproduct rooting against phil and then you have just like 50 people that are there just to watch phil and then of course there's, you know, however many thousands of people or whatever it is online that are watching and and following along. And it's just, it's basically the Phil Helmy show. I mean, he is Mr. WSOP with this record until someone catches him and it doesn't look like anyone's going to catch him anytime soon. And, you know, him getting so close and then ultimately being denied because we know how much he cares about this, right? Like he wears his heart on his sleeve so much. So him getting that close and then getting denied is like, it's bittersweet, yes, but it's, it's also like really entertaining to, to see overall. And it was, I mean, it was a super fun night. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a shame there's luck involved or else he would win every one. He'd be at like a thousand bracelets by now. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: Yeah, I have a soft spot for Helmuth because, uh, he was a guest on our hundredth show a couple years ago. And for Ivy, because for reasons that escaped me, um, I was the only journalist who covered all six years of his, uh, uh, $10 million battle against Borgata with the mini Baccarat edge sorting card scandal. And, uh, which was phenomenal. And, you know, his, uh, his lawyer's paperwork and the responses and the judge got into it and is quoting you too. And her, and the, and the final opinion, I mean, it was such a great saga. So, uh, I'm really fond of the two of them. But I want to mention another past guest we had, uh, uh, Jeopardy James, who you know, not only did he win you know millions of dollars or whatever on Jeopardy, and he's a professional sports better, of course, in Las Vegas, but he changed fundamentally the way everybody who ever played the game looks at it. He didn't go 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. He, he tried to figure out which categories most likely are the daily doubles and which uh, levels it would be. He saved them as long as he could. And then when he got them, he would bet everything, which nobody ever did before, and you know, so everything he did uh, was revolutionary. And I'm just thinking in poker, I'm wondering, you know, if somebody took a ten-year nap and came back and watched this year's event, uh, is there any new strategy? And I'm not just talking about no-limit Texas Hold'em; talking about all of the poker disciplines. You know, is there anything? any kind of trend that has changed either in the last year or last five years where people play a little differently because other than bluffing, which obviously is always going to be there and a big component um, is everything else pretty much straight settled. You know, you have this hand, you fold, you have this, you do that, you raise here. Like has anybody come up with the thinking outside the box, even remotely like Jeopardy James did with that, uh, that game show?
2: Well, there's been, there's certainly been a rise in, like the solver aspect of the game in more recent years, um, you know. It, but ten years, it, it's it's different for sure. It, it's not as different as if you were to compare it to say two thousand three to two thousand eight, but it's it's still very much different, and it's also ever evolving. And then you know, there are people that really dive into these solver streets, and they kind of know every single spot. You know, the the solvers out there, the computer programs, they're able to run millions and millions and millions of simulations and ultimately get you a right answer so there's a lot of people that have evolved in that way and have kind of become robotic in a lot of ways you know not not to to knock them but they've just become really robotic and that's what you see from like the the upper echelon the most elite players in the game they kind of just understand everything know what to do in every single spot and it, it kind of makes for a boring product in, in a lot of ways because it's, it's just kind of solved and you're doing what the computer said. That said, there's always like little tips and tricks that people are constantly trying to improve upon. Um, but ultimately, I mean, like poker is still pretty similar at the lower levels. I mean, there are things like, you know, you used to raise to three times the big blind. Now you really only raise to two or two and a half times the big blind, little tricks like that. Or you play more more passively or more conservative. You're not just going to like get top pair and go broke. You're going to you're going to be like okay, like yes, this person can have two pair. They can have a set. They can have flushes, etc. So the game isn't as wild and crazy as it once was and people aren't willing to just kind of go broke. People are certainly a little bit more safe, conservative with their money when they sit down at the table, but I mean, yeah, it, it's evolved like anything has evolved. I mean, I guess you look at like the NBA, for example, right? I mean, everything's involved very much in terms of analytics. And now it's all about the three point shot because that's the best shot to take analytically. I mean, a lot of stuff in poker has evolved analytically and it's gotten better and the game's gotten better and the average person has gotten better. So, you know, th- I think if you were to, you know, fall asleep 10 years ago and wake up today, you'd wake up and you'd be like, okay, like this is still poker. I get it. I get, you know, in Texas Oldham I get two cards. There's a flop turn and river there's betting. I understand, you know, but, there would be a lot of spots where you'd be like, okay, what's, I don't understand what, what's happening. Why does this person have 7 4 off suit and, you know, and all this crazy stuff? And you, I mean, you would figure it out eventually. You, you'd kind of get up with the times. Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, overall it's, it's, it's changed and it's changed quite a bit.
0: Yeah, well, I think this underscores the, how much we need the two fills, like you said earlier, because uh, they're, they're not giving you that exact uh, you know, logistical robotic uh, situation. And they, they're controversial Not everybody likes either one of them, but uh, they're not boring, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I'd say, I'd say I, Ivy was a little was in some ways maybe the uh, the forerunner of of the solvers, uh, perhaps yeah. in a sense that he's uh, you know he's he's rarely going to make a mistake and uh, and will stay kind of even keel at, at the table, uh, I suppose. But uh, but Helmuth definitely is, is, I think, the opposite of uh, of that yeah. style of play.
2: Yeah, Helmuth is you know Helmuth is just has his Helmuth style of play, and no one really knows what that is. You know, it's it's certainly very feel based read based like playing the player type of stuff they, they call it gto game theory optimal um and and how at times he claims he invented gto at, at times he just completely <laughs> bucks the trend and says you know gto doesn't mean anything like you guys you know it's the standard how stuff you guys don't know anything i have 16 bracelets like whatever um but it, i mean it's great to have characters like that in the game then you know you have someone like a daniel Negranu who when he played doug polk heads up when he battled In some of those higher stakes uh, tournaments, he's been a pro who, although he is from one of the older generations, he's really taken to the solvers and the GTO and really tried to study that stuff to, to stay up with today's game. I think ultimately someone like a Daniel probably makes the best poker player all around, both in terms of playing and also like an entertainment aspect, you know, because he's not just straight robotic. He still does base it on you know playing the player live reads all the stuff that he's learned in however many decades he's been in the game etc but then he also couples that with the solver stuff the gto stuff so it's you're not just you know if you if you tune into poker you're not just seeing a robotic person just make plays based on what the math says or what the answers are you know you see a real person playing the game. And and I think he's probably like the best example of someone that's evolved with the game as it's gone, but it still has like that, that foundational aspect that he's built up in his, I don't know, 30, 40 plus years in the game.
1: All right. Well, you're uh, you're just uh, 16 bracelets away from catching Helmuth, Donnie. So uh, good luck on, uh, on day two in the main event. And uh, promise us that you'll come back on again uh, two weeks from now, uh, if you're $10 million richer.
2: 100 percent you guys you guys you guys uh you guys can just email me or whatever call me and i will be here i appreciate oh, yeah. it Maybe, yeah.
1: okay <laughs> thanks donnie
2: thank you guys all right thanks donnie
0: two men, two men. ten thousand dollars will they run it up or blow it all it's time to check in on the gamble on bankroll
1: Let's update our betting bankroll. And it wasn't quite a perfect week, but it was pretty darn close, especially by our standards. Um, First, we had one futures bet settled. Your preseason bet on the Stars to win the USFL title fell just short. We lose $50 on that but you more than made up for it with your bet last week on them to cover as four and a half point underdogs. That won us a hundred dollars. And in case you're curious, uh, I've added it up, John, you finished plus $410 on UFS, USFL bets all season. You you found your calling. I think (laughs) (laughs) Um, in other sports, you also had a good golf week. The $20 flyer on cam Davis to win outright was a loss, but you got our favorite long surnamed South African bazayton note, uh, for top 20 at plus 140 to win $70, and for top 10 at plus 300 to win $150. Uh, my baseball bets also delivered. I had the Phillies on the run line against Atlanta Thursday, and they won big. That earned us $70. And Kyle Schwarber hit a homer at plus 290 odds, good for an $87 profit. Lastly, my Wimbledon bets. Frances TFO fell a little short, lost a tough five setter in the round of 16. That costs us 30 bucks. And the Anjibur bet is undecided as of this recording. She's playing Thursday morning. So you probably will know by the time you listen to this, whether we won $50 or lost $85. But for now, that sits in the on hold pile. Without it, we won $377 on the week, an excellent showing for each of us. That puts us at minus $3,124 overall. We have $870 on in Futures bets. That leaves us with $6,006 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first. And I'm going back to the Phillies well, starting with the home run prop well, uh, but I won't be betting on Schwarber again. He is the hottest power hitter in the game at the moment. He's coming off back-to-back two homer games, uh, but his price has come way down from the plus 290 that I got last Thursday. Now the best I'm seeing is plus 210 today. So instead, I'm looking at the Phillies' second-best power hitter, at least with Bryce Harper injured first baseman Reese Hoskins who has 17 homers on the season he's homered in three of his last six games but in neither of the past two so maybe he's somewhat due and he has a much nicer price than Schwarber today he's plus 300 at DraftKings Uh, the Phillies are also up against a rather lousy Nats pitcher in uh, see if I'm pronouncing his name correctly I'm not sure but John Adon I believe Uh, he is 1 and 11 with a Mm -hmm. 697 ERA for anyone who still cares about wins losses and ERA so So I like Hoskins for $40 to win 120 if he hits a homer in this Thursday afternoon game. And even though the Phillies have a mediocre pitcher of their own on the mound, Bailey Falter, let's take him on the run line again. It's plus 106. So we'll bet $50 to win 53 that the Phillies can prevail by two or more. Mostly. I just enjoy forcing you to root a teeny weeny bit for the Phillies. Uh, Although honestly, there's no chance they're catching the Mets anyway. They're, They're playing for the wild card. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't mind
0: that. Plus, uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sweating it. And I, and <laughs> right. uh, betting against the don is the winner. Uh, we have a guy who's owned him all season in my fantasy baseball league. And it's just comical. I mean, you right. know, what does the guy have to do? I mean, you know, at some point you got to let it go. You know, you, you, you're, if your investment's failing, you know, it, just don't, don't yep. stick with it. But, uh, now, meanwhile, our stars had the ball. We're up three points. So we're up eight points on the spread, right? Right. Two minutes left ball at midfield, the Stions quarterback is out of the game injured and I can see a $1,000 USL profit from my backyard thanks to my <laughs> preseason pick of 50 units at plus 1,200 in the Stars in an 18 league. Then the Stars quarterback breaks his tibia or fibula now, I remember Jason Williams once broke both on the same play, and I didn't have to look up which was which because it was both whenever I wrote the story. Uh, it was one of those. It's, those were both bad. You don't want to break either one of those. Yeah. And the backup throw is about as weak a pick six as you'll ever see immediately on its first throw.
2: Uh, well,
0: so, you know, I missed the USFL, but uh, instead I'll go with an MLB futures bet. A Paul Goldschmidt, NL MVP, 110 to win 100. Yeah, even money. And if he gets hurt, you know, I'm dead. But he's a healthy stud, so I'll take the
1: chance. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty much injury would be about the only thing to prevent him from winning the MVP at this point. I think it's a pretty good bet. Um, so I took a week off from boxing betting. Now I'm back at it, trying to reverse my momentum. Showtime triple header Saturday night from San Antonio. And in the co-featured bout, the outstanding Brandon, the heartbreaker Figueroa coming off his first pro defeat, a razor thin decision to another elite young fighter and Stephen Fulton. He's moving up four pounds to a more comfortable weight, and I expect him to look great against Carl. Castro. Figueroa is about a minus 700 favorite to win, and I fully expect him to win this fight by stoppage. I was going to place a bet at plus 160 at DraftKings, but I kept shopping and found plus 180 at points bet, so we will take that price. Figueroa to beat Castro by KO or TKO anywhere inside the 12-round distance. Let's bet $50 to win 90. All right.
0: And I'm coming off nailing that U.S. Open winner, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, 20 units at 30 to one recently. So I have to take a flyer on the British Open winner a week ahead. Uh, This time I'm going to go 25 units on Jordan Spieth at plus twenty five hundred. He's this close to being Jordan Spieth again. He thrives at this tournament and on Lynx courses in general. I'm really surprised he's not more like fifteen hundred. So I like the number here.
1: All right. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Donnie Peters. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US bets at US underscore bets. Go to USbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out.
0: And so just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. I always thought those are words to live by. You know, for example, I'm not proud to bet five bucks on Joey Chestnut under 64 and a half hot dogs (laughs) consumed at the annual Nathan's contest at Coney Island. I mean, the only thing more ridiculous than watching people bizarro eating hot dogs. And by that, I mean, if anyone, one of my barbecues ever downs a dog and then soaks the (laughs) bun in water and chugs it, they will be rudely escorted out of the backyard. Okay. and the only thing lamer than that would be watching and rooting for the under. You know, do I chant reversal of fortune or something? And which means what? any of you guess it means yeah that's what it means um so i didn't watch and apparently a protester interrupted things but i didn't read any further from the headline because this is ridiculous so i'm now ten dollars and fifty cents richer getting my five bucks back Plus a profit of five dollars and fifty cents but i'm openly confessing as a form of shame here and reminded all of us don't make lame bets even if they win and with that until next time gamble on